Hey there, folks. Uh, this is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barras. I'm joined by guest co-host Simon. Wait a second. You're the old guy. Simon Foster. How are you, sir? I'm the OG. This is I'm back. Yes, I'm very well, Dan Barrett. Now, I, I dropped on you very quickly last week that I was going to chuff off to China. And it turns out I did. I had a very dramatic visa moment on that Friday. And I literally went from the visa office to the airline and I was Chengdu bound for the Worldcon Science Fiction Convention. Did you miss me? Uh, look, uh, I mean, missing's definitely like a word, but I will say this. Um, I just got a text out of nowhere from Simon saying, hey, I'm in China. And then no, there was no sort of thing of, oh, when I'm coming back, uh, there was no real indication as to exactly what you were doing in China. Were you willing? Were you in a bathtub somewhere with no kidneys anymore? Like what was going on? Um, so anyway, it was definitely a state of confusion for me. But Simon, we're too deep into the podcast now. We haven't told people what's coming up because people need to know that as they're making their purchasing decisions. Are they sure. going to spend the next 45 to 98 minutes with us is the oh, thing that boy, I'm trying to decide. Hopeful. I've got plenty so to say, so all right. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, you start talking. I've just got to pop out for an hour or two, and then I'll just press stop when I get back. <laughs> but, folks, here's what's on today's show. This is the thing we do here. We do some reviews. We talk about TV shows. We talk about movies. Which TV yeah. shows? Which movies? This is where I'm going to tell you that. I am going to talk about two TV shows. One, there's a brand new series debuting on uh, Paramount+. Plus. I wrote the wrong thing in my notes here. It's coming to Paramount+. Plus. It's called Fellow Travelers. Also, I'm going to talk about another TV show. It's called Bodies. Simon is only going to talk about one movie, but when you look at the runtime of that movie, it's like nine movies. It's called Killers yeah, of the Flower Moon. It's by some young filmmaking ingenue named uh, Marty Scorsese, I think his name is. It is Halloween next week, so we're going to talk about some scary movies, but we're not talking <laughs> about the movies. We're talking about the scary scenes from the movies. What are yeah. the scenes that freak the bejesus out of us and we're still a little bit shaky as a result? We're going to talk Very about the exciting. other things we've been watching. We're going to do This Week in History. We're going to do the weekly birthday quiz, which is as inane as ever this week, I am sure. Oh, yeah. Folks, yeah, we've got a yeah. lot to get to. We're going to play the opening titles, and we'll have a bit of a chat after we get started. This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. This is screen watching, Simon, Dan, this is how it works. Simon, wow. you were in China. What was going on? Why were you there? Tell us all about it. All right, very quickly, out of the blue, I got an invitation via email from a gentleman called Louis Salvi who runs the London Sci-Fi Film Festival, and he said, I've got an idea of creating this global sci-fi festival alliance we're going to do it at the world con science fiction convention which is kind of like the olympics for science fiction we all all us nerds go to one place and talk about sci-fi and i want you to come along i want you to represent the sort of oceania region the the, the asia pacific region and i said i will do that um so they paid for everything i got on a plane at the very last minute because like i said my visas were was, was a little bit dramatic um before i knew it i'm in chengdu china 
presenting the launch of the International Science Film Festival, Science Fiction Film Festival Alliance. Gee, it rolls off the tongue. Um, but I spent a week in Chengdu going to lectures and going to panels and going and traveling around the city on their coin. Um, it was quite the experience. My first time in China, beautiful place, beautiful people, certainly an element of um, show in the way they uh, showed their security forces. Uh, they were on every corner and the convention, which I think the general opinion was it was a mighty big convention for a, smelly, a fairly sort of niche type of community, um, but they put on a big show, a big spectacle. I went to the Hugo Awards, which is the, the annual literary awards for science fiction. First time I've gone to that and got the, my festival name out there. So it was, a, it was a hell of a time. Have you ever been to China? Uh, I haven't been to China. I do have a question though, Simon. So you were sent yes, as a representative of our fine southern nations, I guess the Oceania nations. That's right. Yes, sir. You were sent there because presumably because you got the credentials, uh, you run a sci-fi film festival. Like I get it, but here's mm -hmm. the question I have for you. Like, were there any sort of questions asked if you actually knew your sci-fi? So like, do you know what a Jeffrey's tube is? Uh, pardon me, what now? I found out what yeah, a Fermi exactly. paradox was. So, now, what's a Jeffrey's tube? Okay. Okay. First of all, people organizing sci-fi conventions, if you want to give a free trip somewhere across the world to somebody, I know what a Jeffrey's tube is. This is this is all I need to say. A Jeffrey's tube, Simon, it, is... You know when at you see no point... <laughs> yeah, go on. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. You please, sir. At no point over the seven days at which I attended the Worldcon Chengdu 2023 convention did the term did the words Jeffrey and or Tube appear in the same sentence together. I don't know if it was part of the criteria that I had to know what a, a Jeffrey Tube was. A Fermi paradox. I learnt what that was over there. That was pretty interesting. Kids looked that up. Um, but no, come on, drop me, drop on me what a Jeffrey Tube is and keep it clean. Well, I just assumed they had some chats with you at the beginning, realised they'd made a big mistake, and then they just didn't be, even bother mentioning Jeffrey's Tubes or anything of actual credentials afterwards. No, a Jeffrey's yeah, Tube is, uh, you know, when you watch, say, in uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, I yeah. presume they had them in the original Star Trek as well, but you know when, say, like, Geordie LaForge or someone else from engineering has to go and fix the ship, and then they go through, like, those small little vessels, those small, like, tubes around the place, and, like, the, like, patching stuff together yeah it happens regularly in start okay simon star trek was a very popular television program back in why is it called a jeffrey tube who's jeffrey uh jeffrey was one of the production designers or something similar <laughs> you're just making this up anyway simon I'm good with the sci-fi i've had enough of this conversation we need to yeah. dive into some reviews it stinks Simon, you may have been in China, but it hasn't stopped you from seeing the big movie of the, you know, I guess back end of the year. It's a Martin Scorsese movie. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon. Whose land is this? My land. Well, 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 our war hero has arrived. You better get choice coming back here. Scorsese are the finest, wealthiest, and most beautiful people on God's earth. They outsmarted everybody. They had the say. Who gets the oil? Son, I got a question. You like women? <laughs> That's my weakness. <laughs> 
Killers of the Flower Moon is based on journalist David Grant's 2017 non-fiction book, which investigates a series of murders of wealthy Osage people that took place in Osage County, Oklahoma, in the early 1920s. Big oil deposits were discovered beneath their native title-held land, and the state court awarded rights and all profits to the Osage people. But, um, as is often the way, cunning capitalists devised a plot to eliminate the Osage. Uh, white settlers marry themselves to Osage women, binding themselves by wedlock to the Osage oil receipts, and soon any full-blood relatives in line for the money start turning up dead. Officially, the victim count reaches about 20, though likely hundreds more were killed along the way, and the book details the newly formed FBI's investigation of the murders, as well as the eventual trial and conviction of cattleman William King Hale as the mastermind behind the plot. Now, the lead character in the book is investigator Tom White. In the film, he's played by Jesse Plemons, although he doesn't make an appearance until about the two-hour mark. Instead, Scorsese's protagonist is returned World War I serviceman Ernest Burkhardt, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, he's not a very interesting or complex character, and Leo gives one of his less convincing performances, but he does provide Scorsese with a device upon which to pivot his plotting with flashbacks, which Scorsese likes to use, that slowly reveal Ernest to be an easily manipulated and violent tool of the Cattleman King, played by Robert De Niro. Okay, now Scorsese's key interest in this narrative is the criminal machinations of the plot, which is no surprise given his career has almost exclusively been that type of film. Women in Scorsese films are usually victimized or bullied into some kind of sadness, mostly present to show that scumbags, to show what scumbags his lead characters are, like in Raging Bull or The Wolf of Wall Street, Casino, Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, Gangs of New York, of York. Um, that is, if they're present at all, such as like in films The Irishman or The Departed, which barely had any women characters. Now, he casts the brilliant Lily Gladstone as Osage woman Molly, the strongest sister in a family of strong women, or so we are left to assume. She is smart and sensitive and proudly Osage, but she's subservient and naive when it comes to the actions of her brutish husband, Ernest. And while her whole tribe is dying around her, Ernest and Scorsese keeps her quiet by plying her with drugs and deceit until good white man medicine saves her and she gets a brief moment to confront Ernest about his actions. Now, Molly, sadly, is a support character in what should be her story. Instead, Scorsese gives more screen time than he should to toothless hillbilly henchmen, or even more worryingly, very one-dimensional depictions of Osage as violent drunks, or mentally unwell, or noble but confused. Although he exhibits his usual technical flair and filmmaking bravado, Scorsese skirts around the issues that could have been addressed to tell a story we've already seen him tell. Uh, it's in wide release through Apple Films. Simon, it is interesting hearing your, I would say sort of scathing indictment of this movie, okay, yeah. because it really contrasts against the very broad, highly rapturous reception this movie has received. But mm. the thing is, I did see this movie the other night, and obviously yeah. I gave away an entire evening to this movie because, boy, does this yes. film require some stamina to get through. Yep. And I have to say, like, I think I probably liked the movie a little bit more than you did, but I don't think it's very good. I 
think that much like the Irishman, he's retreading a lot of ground that he's trod in much better movies that he's made in the past. I don't think it's that strong a movie. Now, I'll maybe sort of butt against you a little bit with your complaint that um, the lady needed to be the star of the movie and that the depiction of the native, uh, well, the Osage uh, people of the area, uh, like they should have been the focus of it. Ultimately, the filmmaker can really tell the story of whichever way they want to go with it. Like, I don't think I actually want to see a story of the Osage as told by uh, Martin Scorsese, because I don't know that's necessarily going to be his strength. And to me, that would be him making an overture to telling a type of story that just isn't really quite in his wheelhouse. And like, that's fine. But if Martin Scorsese is going to tell a story that he wants to tell, like he should tell the best version of a Martin Scorsese story. And I just don't think he's done that here. I think that it's lazy getting Robert De Niro to play a character, the type of which De Niro himself has played in previous Scorsese films and many other films. Uh, The casting of Leonardo DiCaprio, originally he was supposed to be there playing the Jesse Plemons character, and then DiCaprio decided he didn't want to play that character. He wanted to play, sorry, what was the character's name? Edgar? Um, Ernest, Ernest Burkhardt. Ernest. Yeah. Uh, Playing the Ernest role, he decided he wants to play that role instead. And that's woefully miscast because he's not the age that the character is. Like, this is supposed to be a guy in his early to mid-20s. Everything about this guy is written as a young man who's finding his way in the world. It is not the 48-year-old Leonardo DiCaprio. I think he's 48, maybe 46, thereabouts. But certainly... Mm. 20 plus years older than what this character is supposed to be. And he doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's actually really confusing watching it through a number of um, scenes, but you're willing to go along with it because it's Leonardo DiCaprio and he's a very watchable presence on screen, but it's very similar to watching the Reese Witherspoon character in the morning show playing a character who's supposed to be 20 years younger than where they are, both in terms of profession and um, relationships and understanding of the world it is just a complete mismatch and it doesn't matter your level of star power at a certain point, it just becomes a little bit ridiculous. It's also overly familiar in that he's playing, that he's playing sling blade. He's also doing the sling blade um, bottom door thing, (laughs) which I just found too um, uh, sort of was too much of a callback to, to Billy Bob Thornton's character. So there's so much about this, which, seemed familiar whether it was just the milieu it was set in or there was um not a very interesting take on that 1920s dust bowl life it did it 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 didn't suit the visual stylings of a director who's usually so reliable in that regard also i'd say cinematically it didn't really look like it was technically all that more complex than watching say an episode of deadwood and when I was watching it on screen, I was just wondering, where is the $200 million gone in terms of bringing this to the screen? Because it just wasn't really particularly that big or visually audacious. I mean, it was certainly, it's Scorsese. So it is shot That's and lensed and has a strong auteurist element to it. And you can certainly sure. feel yep. that it's a Scorsese movie. But also, I don't know how that becomes a $200 million movie. Like, that's a lot of money. And I just don't Mm. see where it was on the screen. It's a bizarre film. Also, a bizarre film that goes for three and a half hours. This is a movie (laughs) which, uh, look, if if this was in its place where it was originally intended to be, which is Apple TV+, that's right, Simon, I said it. 
If this was on Apple TV+, Plus, I would happily have watched this as a three episode. It's Martin Scorsese finally doing television. And I would have watched all three episodes of that and probably lapped it up because it makes for three really good chapters. But a three and a half hour movie... Oh, come on. <laughs> it was yeah. just a slog to was, get through. And there was probably there was a very good movie in this. Yeah. yeah. Well, Simon, it's just let me there finish. Was, I think there's a very good movie in it, but it gets lost on a canvas of three and a half hours. That's exactly right. Um, I've read some reviews that compare it to Michael Shimino's Heaven's Gate, uh, both in terms of the cost and the extended runtime. Um, now, Heaven's Gate is a movie that I really love, but I totally agree with viewpoints on that um it's it's a three hour film with a 90 minute story and that's what i felt about um uh, uh killers of the flowering flower moon because it was a certainly in that first hour where he's constantly um gathering all the hillbillies together to do his dirty work and there's he has some deep long talks with de niro about uh finding his Osage bride and that disgusting comment when he said he liked the heavy, heavy set woman and all that sort of horrible stuff that he said that should have showed him to be the scumbag he was. Um, that could have all been tightened up and could have all gone out the window um, or added to and made into a four-hour, like you say, a four-hour, four episodes on Apple TV. You're right, it probably needed that bigger canvas on the smaller screen to, to really make it work. So, yeah, I think this is very mid-level uh Scorsese um very mid-level DiCaprio as well and I was I wasn't I mean I wasn't bored by it although (laughs) yes I was at times I was um yeah so I think it's uh I don't think it's going to feature very heavily in in come Oscar season I think there'll be a backlash I think let's also give some credit to some of the supporting characters. So, for example, when John Lithgow appears on screen, I thought to myself, you know what? This is the best I've seen John Lithgow playing the exact same character who played in Perry Mason since I saw him in Perry Mason. And I just thought, bravo, John Lithgow, bravo. And I can I just say that Brendan Fraser comes on at just the right time when the movie needs a good laugh as well. His first, his first um, boisterous... Uh, southern lawyer moment I just thought oh my god what film are you in but I want to watch that one instead so uh, yeah it had some it had some odd casting decisions made so the friends that I went and saw it with on Tuesday night uh, they really liked this movie they were rapturous about it and I was very concerned I'd be sitting here having to be as polite to you as I was polite to them the other night and thankfully you didn't care for it at all so I'm having a much better day than I was really anticipating this conversation, leaving it to be. <laughs> I think I certainly think there's an element that go, oh, Scorsese, De Niro, DiCaprio, it's good. And they're just as capable of making a flaw, an interesting but flawed film as any other filmmaker that's going around. I think that's what they've done here. I should point out, one of my mates was seeing it for the second time. Oh, for love of God, he's got to get more of a life. He could have watched... <laughs> He could have watched Flying High three times in the time it took him to watch that. No arguments here. Not a single one. <laughs> Simon Foster. All right, let's move on. Let's, yeah, let's do that. Uh, because we've both seen Grown Men Naked before and we both really enjoy Gladiator movies, it probably is time to move the conversation forward. We're going to talk about some TV shows. Uh, first of all, there is a brand new series turning up very soon on Paramount+. Plus. It's called Fellow Travelers. I believe we have reason to ask you a series of questions. What reason? We're not at liberty to say. Please have a seat. 
Have you ever attended meetings affiliated with the Communist Party? No. Our country is under threat from Soviet spies, but there's another risk to national security. What is your marital status? Single, but there is a special lady in the picture. How stunning. Have you ever had inappropriate physical contact with another man? No. Such a damn good liar. So Fellow Travelers is this new limited series that's appearing on Paramount Plus. And first of all, I know what you're thinking. I know what everybody is thinking right now. Fellow Travelers, we've seen this before. We've seen Matt Bomer appearing in Fellow Travelers. And I'm like, no, you haven't seen Fellow Travelers. You watched the 2007 action-adventure program Traveler, which also starred yes. Matt Bomer. This is an entirely different program. Okay, so please okay. put Traveler aside. Put away the question, who really is Will Traveler? Okay. It doesn't matter. That terrorist storyline, it got cancelled after eight episodes. We're never going to get the answers. This show right. does not have the answers you're looking for. Okay. Fellow Travelers, entirely different program. So what this is, it's actually a fairly serious drama. Uh, you've got Matt Bomer playing this uh, guy. He's in, I think he's in a state department. I kind of missed exactly which government department he was sort of working within. Uh, but anyway, he's a big uppity mark in the U.S. government. He ends up meeting a guy at a party, and this is in the 1950s. Ends up meeting a guy in a, at this party. It's a uh, Republican party, uh, like a Republican party party, uh, and really gets taken with this guy. Uh, it's a gay romance, but the two of them have to keep it all under wraps because it's 1950s, and you've got a lot of the McCarthy era... Um, concerns that are bubbling away. Uh, both are on the cusp of like being found out. Uh, and you can sort of see there's this really great sequence with uh, the two men as, as they've got like their sort of uh, pre-relationship sort of dalliance sort of uh, taking place. But they're there by the Lincoln reflecting pool. There's a mysterious man just kind of lurking off in the distance. And he's like, you know, just be careful sort of how you're acting. Uh, we're clearly being watched. And that was just kind of like the mood of the time, particularly around Washington, as they were looking for subversives and just, you know, all those uh, people that are different to you and I, Simon. Sure. So we would have been fine. We could get along in McCarthy era of Washington without any problems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess I'm except a, for his manifesto conversations. I'm a, I'm a deeply closeted gay man. No, I'm <laughs> deeply closeted. Uh, well, I was thinking... <laughs> I was thinking more in terms of the fact you've just come back from uh, China with all of your yeah. red propaganda, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and for those out there listening, that's a reference to a great Norm MacDonald bit that he did on one of the talk shows. I'm a deeply closeted gay man. You're gay? No, I'm deeply closeted gay man. Anyway, do go on. I am familiar with every comedy bit that Norm MacDonald ever did. He never said anything of the such. This is just Simon Foster looking for an outlet. But let's move on. So look, you've got these two guys, relationship forms, and it's in the shadow of McCarthyism. So you've got that happening, but this is a storyline that takes place over three different times. So it takes place in the um, 50s. It's taking, actually, sorry, four times, really. Uh, it's 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Okay, and what's kind of interesting about all four of those decades is that they're examining a gay relationship at a time where, you know, a lot of people didn't want to be out for the obvious reasons, you know, there's no new ground there, but we're seeing the different sort of 
perceptions and manifestations of that over a number of decades. Okay, and what's maybe a little bit interesting is that the story begins in the 1980s as the AIDS crisis is really sort of reaching its peak. And you're seeing the Matt Bomer character is in a long-term, several decades long-term relationship with a character played by, uh, what's her name, Williams? Um, what's her name? Alison Williams. Oh, okay. He's yeah. in, a, been in a relationship uh, with her for years. Yeah. 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 Uh, also girls is probably a big title, but anyway, so you've got this, uh, relationship sort of going over, uh, he's married to her. She kind of understands that he's gay and just sort of looks the other way. Although, you know, is he bisexual? Is it just kind of working? Who really knows? People can do all sorts of things under pressure, including having sex with Alison Williams, I guess, if one must. Bit of a fan, look, are we? <laughs> Who doesn't love Alison Williams? Like, she just seems so mean. Oh, gosh, I love it. But anyway, you watch Simon as the opening sequence happens with uh, him being told that the um, love interest has AIDS and doesn't have long to live, but he doesn't want to see him. So he flies to San Francisco to, you know, reunite with him. Uh, so it is like truly the love of their lives and uh, it's a romance that is just hampered by the realities of um, the world as cruel as they could be. Sure. Anyway, fascinating drama. Okay. The one element to it I would say is that while there's certainly a lot about the show, which speaks to me as a viewer and things that I'm really interested in. So I like the idea of thinking about social constructs of society. I'm really um, actually very interested in the, McCarthy era and a lot of the subversives that, well, the people identified as subversives and the way they had to hide themselves, uh, reassimilate into societies, uh, take things head on. And those that took things head on, like how that impacts their lives for years to come when they get blacklisted, all that's very interesting. Washington stuff, really, really interesting. But the one challenge I had with this program is, and it's the way that I'm wired, I'm not a gay man. And so as I'm watching a lot of this show, which is built very much to tap into a hyper gay audience who really want to watch the sizzling, just sexual chemistry. And just the fact that Matt Bomer is just a physical Adonis of a guy. And look, I mean, people are into Matt Bomer in a really, really big way. Sure. Uh, like watching him in, romantic and very explicitly sexual scenes on screen and just like the simmering tension before they get to those sex scenes for an audience mm. like that is going to be just like whoa this is exactly what i want to see this is doing it for me in all the right ways and right. look simon i mean you and i we're red-blooded men you know we're just disgusting meat bags <laughs> There's been so many movies and TV shows made for us to appeal to those sort of carnal elements of our viewing where we can sit back going, gosh, I'm really enjoying this movie. I can't put my finger on what it is exactly, but boy, is this for me. And ultimately, I hope there's more of that sort of stuff because I enjoy watching stuff and I enjoy being a disgusting meatbag. But the thing right. is that there are disgusting meatbags out there who haven't had like this sort of carnal pleasure depicted on screen that is made for them. And this is absolutely made for them. This is absolutely made if you are the sort of person who just hearing the name Matt Bomer thinking, I would like to see him cavorting around very naked and looking lustfully into another man's eyes. If that is suddenly just ticking those boxes for you, 
you are going to enjoy this. This is a really good high quality production with a lot of really interesting character work taking place. But I do feel that so much of it really hinges upon like your need to not be in love with the characters, but be in lust with the characters on screen. That for me as someone who wasn't in lust with them, I felt a little bit at a distance from it. And I'll probably watch a few more episodes, but I'm not sure I'm going to be deeply invested in this one. Um, it's good, but you know, it's just, I think it's going to be audience dependent and obviously, um, there's an audience that's underserved and there's an audience which is highly overserved. And I think that is perfectly fair for people to go, you know what, this may not be for me, but guys have at it. I have a number of reactions to that. That So just to be clear, that was the element that sort of that element is what pulled you out of the i shouldn't say that is what sort of stopped uh, so, you from enjoying the so, to be to be really clear because i don't want to come across sound like a raging homophobe at all i mean i've got many friends that are gay no <laughs> what i want to say is i think you can i think you can like as a straight man or a straight woman however you yes. want to identify non-binary possibly you can very obviously watch a romantic film which is uh featuring people that are other than yourself like you can sure, get that you can appreciate it you can enjoy it you can be lost in the romance of it all and whatnot mm -hmm. i just think that the way that this very specifically is constructed is you need to be in lust with the characters and really just sort of feel that animal magnetism that's taking place on screen it extends beyond the intellectual it is like that sort of physical thing where you just kind of get lost in what's happening on screen and i kind of think that unless you are of the same sexual orientation or you know compatible orientations i'm not sure that you're necessarily quite going to get the full effect of this production i think it is very overtly for an audience which is just really into it in a way that like i'm just not and i can feel that distance okay mm -hmm. i appreciate this for what it's doing i just don't think that i'm necessarily the audience but there's obviously surely an audience the, for it and i'm happy that being served surely the lust that the characters are feeling for each other and the heightened sense of romance and passion that they're going through is is relatable whether gay or straight or binary or whatever you want to choose that we can understand what those yeah, two people as lovers you can, you can appreciate i i understand what's going on because i'm not an idiot okay i mean i know that everything i've said in the past suggests otherwise but no i can understand what's going on it's not like it's an entirely foreign idea to me at all but i think that just physically there's just an element of it which is wanting you to really feel like that same draw like this is what a good i mean Look, there's been plenty of bad quality productions which also have engendered sort of similar feelings of, you know, desire in me as an audience member before. Uh, but like Simon, I think it's incredibly naive to think that through the many decades, the many, 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 many decades of movie viewing that you've done throughout your life, that you haven't come across um, scenes which you know that it's appealing to you on a very base carnal level. And like that's part oh, sure. of the appeal of what you're watching. Like, I mean, yeah. think about the joy that you've Splash. had watching the, um, like, Splash is probably a fairly good example of, I mean, Splash has other elements going on <laughs> where I don't think it really was me. just strictly the carnal. No, no, I'm just saying, like, Splash, Splash is a bit interesting in that there's some very obvious elements that tap into the same elements that a lot of the 80s sex comedies tapped into. Okay. But I know that... I watched Splash initially as a prepubescent kid, okay, and I was able to fall in love with Splash for elements that weren't necessarily like that. 
But you compare that to a lot of the other sex comedies of the 80s, like that is just a carnal appeal to a certain type of audience where if you're not the same sexual orientation as to what's on screen, you're not going to quite have the same reaction. Are you saying that, that let's take another film of that period, Nine and a Half Weeks, which was a smoking hot heterosexual fantasy, dark fantasy type of uh, sexually potent love story. Are you saying that the elements of that that were as uh, influential and as impactful on us as gay men, uh, straight men, or or, or straight women, <laughs> oh, didn't have that impact? Didn't have that same impact on on uh, the homosexual community? Well, look, there's probably a couple of elements at play here. So, first of all, I'd say I haven't actually ever seen I Nine and a Half Weeks, so I can't really speak for sure. I didn't have, this has been a fascinating insight. I haven't, I didn't expect to go down this sort of path with this review, but it's, it does, it has piqued my interest. But look, I would say I haven't seen that movie, so I can't really sort of comment one way or another specifically about it. Also, I haven't really been in an audience with people that were, you know, wide sexually different to myself while watching it. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily have a pool of people that I can say, how did this make you feel? Uh, I think you probably actually need to speak to like a, you know, gay person watching that in, when did Nine and a Half Weeks come out? Like 90, that was 90, um, 80, what, six, 87, thereabouts? 87, yeah. Um, you probably need to speak to someone at the time. So if you can jump in your DeLorean, um, go and do that. Uh, like, I, I just kind of feel as though, like, I'm not the person that can speak for other people and their sexual desire while watching a movie. But I can say that as someone who's seen movies before and as a disgusting meatbag, I know there are some movies that have been designed very much to appeal to very specific things of which suit my interests. And this, there was a slight distance because I'm not the intended viewer. I mean, I, I'm sure they didn't make her thinking Dan's Dan Barrett TV aficionado in Brisbane, Australia. What are we doing for him? Like, how's he being served by this? I don't think I was necessarily yeah. like their core consideration. I'm sure they weren't trying yeah. to alienate me from it. Like, essentially, I'm an ally. I'm perfectly there for this. But I just found there was a number of scenes in this where I knew that they were after like that thing where you just really felt it. And because I'm not, like, I just wasn't able to feel it in that way that I kind of feel the show really depends at uh, screenwatchingpodcast at gmail.com if you have thoughts on uh, on this topic. It's interesting. I'm, and I'm not I'm not sort of deriding or, or downplaying what you're saying. <laughs> I'm, I th I'm, I'm completely I'm, I'm interested concerned. to talk about this sort of stuff. I'm concerned about the many emails we're going to get from people talking about, yes, this is what gives me a boner while watching a movie. That's exactly why I gave out the email address, of course. Anyway, so you wanted to you wanted to roll from fellow travellers oh, to the new Netflix series Bodies. <laughs> this ought to be good. Look, let's play a clip of Bodies and we'll talk about it when we get out. At 6am on the 10th of September, a man was murdered on Long Harvest Lane. There's not one hit on any database. No DNA on record, no prints. No bullet casings were discovered on the scene and no exit wound either. That's impossible. The murder is out there. You found something out, haven't you? D.I. Hillinghead, 1890. D.S. Whiteman, 1941. There's been three murders on Long Harvest Lane, decades apart. The bodies are all identical. 
I'm not sure I'd probably call it a hit new show on Netflix, but it's certainly one of these shows that's come along and got quite a few people talking. It's this show called Bodies. Now, this is a, I think it's an eight episode run and it's a limited series. It will wrap up at the end of the eight episodes. So don't expect that to be a season two. My understanding is there isn't really a plan for that at the moment. And I don't know, I'm sure if it's a huge hit, they'll just expand the Bodies universe and just have different bodies next season. Uh, yeah, but look, this is based originally on a Vertigo graphic novel from Cy Spencer. I haven't read this. I actually didn't really know this beyond just the title of it uh, before I sat down and watched it. But what's interesting about this is it's a show that is ostensibly and kind of in a similar way to Fellow Travelers, which I was just talking about, set across multiple time periods. So that was following the same characters through. But the gimmick on this one is that you see an opening sequence taking place in 2023. Uh, There's a modern day uh, female cop. Uh, She is, it's it's her day off. She's not supposed to be there that day. It's, yep. Uh, I don't know how many days from retirement she is, so I don't know exactly how many uh, stereotypes (laughs) they're trying to tick off with this one, but um, she's not near retirement, but... She's not supposed to be there that day, but there is a um, like a far right uh, white pride protest taking place in the streets of London. She's being called in to help sort of handle the um, you know situation. Although because this is a TV budget, you, there's enough people cast as the white supremacists in their various robes, but there's actually no one else on the streets. Um, so I don't know exactly what she's controlling or whatever, because it seems like a pretty empty town from what I can see. But anyway, she's out on the streets. She sees this young uh, young guy with a gun in his hand. And she's like, wait a second, young man with a gun. He's Asian, white supremacist. They're probably not the people he's interested in. There might be a problem here. So anyway, she gives chase to this guy. They go running through the streets. Uh, he ends up going down this sort of um, very empty alley, much like all the other streets in London, apparently. Goes down this empty alley, except it's not entirely empty. There is a body lying in that alley, a naked middle-aged dude who's just lying there, Uh-oh. dead. And so she's like, wait, this needs to be investigated. The guy ends up escaping, not the dead body, but the guy's alive. Yeah, the guy, he ends up yeah. escaping, but she's caught in the fact there's a body. And so now there's an investigation into this body. And that kid is now the key suspect for uh, possibly murdering this guy. Why would he run the back thing to is, he just killed somebody? Well, I mean, this is a question. Not an unreasonable question. Detective Simon Foster. Oh, I've seen plenty of these sorts of shows, my friend. Yeah. Well, have you though, Simon? Because there's something creepy happening because a couple of streetlights have like started pulsating and explode with like a fire of like sparks everywhere. What's that about? Just some sort of element. Well, maybe. Wait a second. On the screen, you see the time code flipping back. And wait, Simon, we're now back in 19... Oh, gosh, I wish I paid attention to the year. Uh, when was London When was London bombed in World War II? Like 1940-something? Oh, yeah, like when's the Blitz? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't about. alive then. I was so still anyway, very like... young when it happened, so... <laughs> So look, we're right there. The Blitz is about to happen. It's a day away because we see the Blitz like, you know, a few scenes later. But anyway, uh, we're now following this uh, crooked cop who's there. He's uh, been doing some jobs on the side. Uh, Sorry, there was probably an element that I probably should have mentioned originally, which was that the female cop who was giving chase, uh, she was uh, like Muslim 
in some sort of capacity. I don't think they really expressly said exactly where she's from, but you know, she wears a headdress at times. She doesn't look like you and I. Okay. Okay. Like, I, I, I presume I maybe. Think be, I don't think you can be well, a little she... bit Muslim. You're either Muslim or you're not. <laughs> look, I've met a couple of people who I would probably describe as a little bit Muslim. It just depends whether family members are around or not. But anyway, that's probably an entirely different conversation. And I'm hoping those people aren't listening to this podcast. Anyhow, Simon. Uh, so the whole thing is that they've established her as being other in the present sort of day. Okay, and I've juxtaposed it very heavily with, I mentioned that White Pride uh, parade that was taking place. Oh, this yes. guy, pre-London Blitz, uh, you see as he's walking through the streets of London to his police job, walks past a sign which talks about the anti-Jewish sentiments around at the time. And then suddenly over the next couple of scenes, it's just a whole bunch of conversations about how people hate Jews. And so he's wow. dealing with that okay. while also being a crooked cop. And then, wait a sec, Simon, he goes... He's sent from the people that have, you know, got him on his, their payroll to go and pick up a body from an alleyway, which, wait a second, oh. it's the exact same alleyway that the lady found the body many, many decades from now. Okay. Right. And so, I am getting quite plot twist, and this, this is where those, this stage, yeah. this, is wh this is where the plot, the genre elements come into it because it's the exact same body, the exact same level of nudity, and the exact same physical ailments taking place, which is bullet to the eye, but. In the various autopsies that get done on her, they find there's actually no bullet in there at all. What's happened? What's killed this guy? Who knows? That's why there's another seven episodes after the first one. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, I'm kind of hooked with this. You've done a but good Simon, upselling of it because I didn't know anything about it. But Simon, what's better than a mystery like this being served across two time periods when you could go even further back another 30 or 40 years prior Okay, yeah, and see you. some people in like fancier waistcoats getting around, also solving the same murder of a naked body that's turned up in that same laneway, and so oh. you're seeing three different types. Yeah, so you're seeing three different sort of time periods, but the gimmick of it. I mean, look, I haven't read the original graphic novel, so I don't know if this actually builds into that at all, and I suspect not, but, you know, I haven't done the research, so I apologise if I'm going completely off base here. But there's definitely a trend taking place within uh, TV commissioning to make sure that there's definitely an element of identity politics being sort of intersped into the storytelling. Part of what I found frustrating with this was the idea that in every time period, you've suddenly got a person who is being ostracized by like a mainstream um, political uh, consideration of the time. So in the current time, you've got like this sort of alt rise of the alt-right and sort of white supremacists around and, you know, all the grossness that, that entails. But then suddenly you also, and like, that'd be perfectly fine if that was like an isolated thing for her story. But to me watching it, like it suddenly becomes lessened by the fact that the entire series is about people facing like elements of their um, ethnicity or sexuality, depending on what time period that they're in. And mm. to me, it's just like, well, that becomes like a bit of a um, gross gimmick that only ties into TV commissioning needs rather than actually benefiting the story and the investment we can have as a viewer in it. So why well, I want to juxtapose fellow travelers against bodies. No, no, Simon, just Wouldn't one sec. The reason why I wanted to juxtapose fellow travellers against bodies is because I feel yeah. that fellow travellers has a similar conceit in that they're looking at the, uh, I'm going to say plight of the homosexual man, but I'm not sure that's really quite the word. That just no, sounds yeah, a little bit sort you. of um, 
yeah, like you see where I'm coming. I, I know the plot's really quite right, I, I want to say, but suddenly the the struggles of gay men through different decades and how each decade they're adapting and changing to the elements as society is becoming more welcoming and accepting and that rejection and push and pull that's taking place throughout those four decades. Sure. You're watching that. It feels very um, integral to the overall concept of fellow travelers in a way which I just thought was a really deep consideration taking place. It's the, um, it gives integrity to the production. Whereas in this, it feels like an element that's tacked on to what's already a very sort of big and broad dramatic uh, genre conceit. And so it didn't really quite feel authentic. It kind of felt like it was just, oh, it's 2023. And this is the sort of thing that you need to include into a TV show right now. And it, it just didn't really quite feel right. Like I would have actually enjoyed watching, um, you know, those sorts of elements in like one of the time periods or two of the time periods. But when suddenly there's three time periods and you're seeing them all approaching um, culture and society in a very similar way, like it just lost me a little bit. And sure. again, fellow travelers works because it's the same characters. But when you're just seeing like four disparate, sorry, I just gave away part of the plot twist at the end of the first episode. That's As you're okay. seeing three disparate people in different time periods, all like dealing with, you know, stuff, it, and but also dealing with the same murder mystery, like it's kind of too much. At a certain point, you've just tacked too much on and stuff starts feeling disingenuous. Hmm. Okay. So Simon, I think I've given away the thing now. We're going to lead into the plot twist of the fire of the first episode. As we start seeing all the various um, murder investigations taking place, Sure. The last sequence of the first episode, the time clock moves into the future and we see I a like lady it. in, I think it was like 2050, who's investigating the naked dude turning up in the same laneway. But there is oh. a further plot twist. I'm going to leave it right there. So I anyway. Because you you've said plenty, as, but I just want to say yeah, that as... Look, as as this unfolds and I start to understand where it's going, I'm quite intrigued by how all these elements come together. I'm going to go in it with a bit more of a here's hoping they can turn what could be cheap gimmicky use of, of you know, um, ticking of the boxes in terms of social issues. Uh, it, it, I, I'm hoping that it plays out stronger than, than maybe that first episode indicates. You've picked two very good reviews. I'm quite intrigued by both of the things you've reviewed this evening. Or morning. Or what time is I it? mean, you're only really interested in the first one because of a very shirtless and naked Matt Bomer. I'm not going to deny that. Absolutely. Oh, he's a very attractive man. He was in Magic <laughs> Mike, wasn't he? He was one of the dancers, I think. Uh, was he? I'm not sure. I mean, Matt Bomer's been in kind of everything for years and years. Yeah. Yeah. At least since 2007 young, when I first noticed him in Traveller. <laughs> it's got, it's got, uh, Bodies has got Stephen Graham, who's a great actor, who was in one of my favourite things last year that, that he did with um, Jodie Cromer, The Thing in the Hospital. And it's got Shira Huss in it, who was in Unorthodox, which is one of my favourite films from a couple of years ago. So this is a quality cast. Uh, look, it's probably also worth noting, I think, probably the big name playing a supporting role in there, one Greta Skarki. I love Greta. I met Greta once in a, in a hallway near her home in Coogee. <laughs> sure. We're also going to bump into Grotoskarki. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, they're two interesting shows. Anything else to add to them before I jump into the one they real, everyone's really waiting for me to talk about? Oh, look, I mean, I just wanted to say I think that Bodies is a very capable genre story. I think people will find it to be a engaging, 
light watch, but there's certainly elements to it, such as the medical procedures, which is very much supposed to be a, can you believe the way they did autopsies a hundred years ago? You know, what, what savages they were. Sure. It's supposed to very much evoke that kind of thing. Uh, sure. But, you know, and people handle medical sequences in different ways. Uh, so, you know, your mileage will vary a little bit there. Broadly, I, I think it's a very watchable, fun TV program with a very interesting murder mystery at the center of it. I just kind of wish they hadn't overloaded it so much with something that felt a bit inauthentic to me. Okay, which brings us to one of the big releases of the year, Hot Potato, the story of the Wiggles. Interview take one. Hi, where are the Wiggles? Hot Potato, Hot Potato. They're like the Beatles for toddlers. These tickets were harder than the Stones and Springsteen. There's a reason for the colors. There needs to be a psychology of why this hits. You may have heard of them. They're the Wiggles. They are Haven't. the cult. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you: Is it a Wiggles household there with your little one? Is she? Uh, is she in the coloured skivvy? Uh, look, I mean, she, her only real exposure to the Wiggles, I think, is occasionally we'll watch. I mean, we watch it fairly regularly. We watch a lot of ABC Kids, but occasionally there'll be like a Wiggles thing that comes up. But I don't think she's really bought into the Wiggles one way or another. I can't believe how long it's been since the Wiggles first came on the scene, early 90s, as depicted in this documentary. Um, we learn, as is the case with the sort of um, looking back at our icons and the superstars of our generations, we see how they're formed. We learn of some conflict within the group. We see how they handle the fame. We see how they handle the, the different iterations of the Wiggles, how they bring on board new members, um, and some of the controversies that surrounded that. Uh, they were seen to be the uh, sort of tools of the woke generation at one point, and they brought on board um, uh, first women and then a whole lot of other different elements that, that set off the, the Fox News and Sky News people. Um, as is portrayed in, in this documentary, they handled it with all the good grace we expect from the Wiggles. Um, but what we find is that at the heart of the Wiggles, and it's no surprise to learn they're, they're passionate about storytelling, they're, they're passionate about educating children and, and keeping them entertained while also expanding their minds. Um, but what we also find is that this is a, um, a sort of a glimpse inside what makes them and what made them originally beat as a group and to... And to um, it's directed by Sally Aitken, who has done terrific work with topics that look at our iconic figures and our you know great Australian figures um, and gets inside their heads and their emotions. She did Playing With Sharks, the Valerie Taylor story. She directed all of the Pacific the, in the wake of Captain Cook. She did the David Stratton documentary, A Cinematic Life. So she's willing to take these sort of grand Australian figures and break them down into very human elements. And uh, that comes comes across in this it didn't really go anywhere i didn't expect it to go you watch these sort of documentaries as a fan um and as a fan you love what you see and um go oh wow i didn't know that oh look i forgot about that and stuff like that so there's no great revelations in the mix um but it is sort of a nice wander down memory lane uh with the the four guys and then it expands to about a dozen different wiggles types you do learn that they had um wiggles incarnations in um 
Spain and Portugal and Mexico and all these different parts of the world. So uh, what a huge multi-million dollar exercise it's really been. Hot Potato, the story of the Wiggles is on Amazon Prime. Played a session at the recent South by Southwest Festival, which um, seems, I guess, kind of appropriate, but uh, has come straight to Amazon Prime. Yeah, uh, I've got zero interest in the Wiggles. They came about after I was a kid and, you know, they're around, that's fine, you know, whatever. Uh, we've sort of got the end of the, the, the four men era, the Murray and Jeff and Greg, that, that whole era was my youngest daughter was sort of into them, but as they, you know, they disappear from your lives. But it's good to see them. And the, the footage they show of them as really young men, college students or training to be teachers, they... Uh, and I forgot that a, a bunch of them were in the Cockroaches, that great sort of 80s poppy band that the, the Field Brothers were all out front of that. So it was um, it was good, a bit of a wander down Gen X memory lane for me. Yeah, look, I wish them well. I just didn't really have a Wiggles attachment by any means, like at all through my life. So it's kind of just, you know. You had the skivvies. Know, I, I, I wish you wear the well. skivvies. You look good in the Yeah, blue, but look, my skivvies. My skiv my skivvies. Uh, I, I was trying to think of anyone else that wears a skivvy, and I couldn't really like like into anyone there. No one. Do you even own a skivvy? I used to have skivvy. like heaps of skivvies. Never own a skivvy. It's, it's 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 it sounds weird to just keep saying the word skivvy. Skivvy. It's very odd. Strange Sorry, can I have a completely different tangent? Yes. Sorry, this, this is unrelated to the Wiggles. This is just literally something that happened in my life yesterday. And I just thought I'd share. I was, uh, part of my commute home from work each day is uh, I ride from a train station to my home on a bicycle. As I was on my bicycle for that component of the car journey, I drove past a DeLorean driving down the street. And this wasn't a DeLorean that was built with the idea, well, sorry, built or, you know, um, it wasn't a DeLorean that was owned with the idea of gussying it up to, you know, show at like comic book conventions and to have his like the pride in your garage. But really it's just some guy bought a DeLorean that happens to be around and probably because he likes Back to the Future. And, you know, if you get the chance to buy a DeLorean, like maybe you do that. But I have to say the DeLorean, such a crappy looking vehicle in real life. It is just (laughs) such an awful... Awful looking car. Like, I understand the joke of that movie. And part of, and sorry, this is what triggered me thinking about it, which was that um, I was too old for the Wiggles, so I don't really have that connection there. But I've got a very strong connection to Back to the Future because I've watched that a lot as a kid. Mm -hmm. But also I was a kid watching her, and so I just saw this really cool car. I had no idea that it was a complete joke of a vehicle. But now later in life, I kind of see it for what it is. And so now I appreciate the joke of that car becoming the time machine. Exactly. Everything, not actually, well, nothing about that film has aged badly. It's still as vibrant, as exciting now as it was back then, except the look of the DeLorean. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a really shit car. <laughs> I, yeah, and as you say, I think that was kind of the joke back then. It was the fact that a, a, a crazy old professor could, in fact, get a DeLorean, kind of put the car in its place back in the day. So, yeah, you're right. Great film, shit car. Yeah. Anyway, Simon, that little intermission-style conversation is really just a taster as we delve forth into the intermission. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's intermission time. All right, 
Mr. Barrett, I'll take the lead on this one. You came up with a very good idea, all to do with the, as we record this, impending Halloween day, October 31. Happy birthday to my eldest daughter, Madison. She was born on October 31. But what we really celebrate is Halloween. Um, in this segment, we each have chosen three scenes from film or TV, the screens that we watch. Not exactly, not specifically the films that have terrified us the most. We've gone down that path before. We've all mentioned Poltergeist and Exorcist and Cujo and all those sort of things. Um, these are actual specific scenes within films we may not have raised previously that give us the willies that still frighten us and terrified us when we first saw them. So um, we have three. This should be fun and quick. Uh, you want to lead us off? Well, Simon, do you want to go first for your three? Because okay. I'll admit, this se this entire segment was made more of a gift for you than for me. Okay, but I'm kind of <laughs> okay. interested to know. Well, like, the oh. thing is, like, horror just really isn't actually my bag. And so right. my broad exposure to horror is actually fairly limited. All right. But you've got scenes that scare you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to run off three fairly sort of, a couple of them a bit obscure, but I think you, you'll, you'll understand the scenes when I talk about them. The first one is a 1981 film called Possession. It's from a Polish director, Andrzej Zaluski. It stars Sam Neill. Now, he plays a man called Mark who, in this one particular scene, walks in on his wife, Isabella Jani, having a very icky time with a blob-like creature. Now, this is a monster. It's designed by uh, E.T. creator Carlo Rambaldi. It's a sentient being that actually grows strong and thrives on, on physical violence and lives sort of in this filth and this goop and this sexual sort of horribleness, um, and she becomes obsessed with it. And in this scene where Sam Neill discovers Isabella Gianni doing it with this gloopy thing, I'll never forget when I first saw it. It just absolutely rocked my world. I saw it as a, first of all, as a scratchy old VHS tape, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I, many, many years later, I bought the Blu-ray, and I watched it again. I've never seen this on the big screen, but that may be just too much for me to handle because it is a scene that gave me nightmares. So it's called Possession, um, features an over-the-top performance by Isabella Gianni, and in this one scene, it will completely give you nightmares for the rest of your life. So check it out. Want me to go again? Okay. So I'll drop one in there. Okay. So like, oh, I kind of there. feel like maybe I've talked about this on the show before, and I'm concerned about that with my second entry in this as well. But... The absolute scariest thing I've ever watched, ever, of anything, is the 1990 TV miniseries It, which, okay. uh, to stress, while people in um, some countries consider it a miniseries, I was thinking about it more as a movie because we got it here as a VHS release with, like, you know, two tapes. And to my mind, it was really the one production. So I have trouble thinking about it as being a miniseries. That said... There's something about that miniseries where there's several sequences in it which just completely freaked me out. And part of this is obviously because if it came out in 1990, it was the 1990 release, so it was probably like 91 here, I'm guessing. I was 10, 11 years old. And 10, 11 years old, you know, lots of things can kind of freak you out. But this kind of got into my psyche a fair bit because the thing with it was that Pennywise travelled largely through the sewers and would appear in bathrooms and toilets and all sorts of real world connectable things that I experienced as a 10 or 11 year old. It may surprise you to know, Simon, I knew what a toilet was when I was 11 years old. Yeah, so a little bit. Uh, I was, yeah, 
I was freaked out. I did rationalize it to myself thinking that, well, it Pennywise, like he was in the United States and like, that's a lot of tunnels to get to, to, you know, there's no real sewerage connections between America and Australia. So it's probably okay. I don't think it's going to be a problem. But I think the reason why it as a production, like just had such a profound effect to just scare the crap out of me was the way it's shot is so cheap looking and so bare basic and there's a reality that comes in from that. You compare that production to the sure. over-stylized, very glossy Andy Masachewski. I've got his surname wrong. Machete. Uh, it's close. Machete. That might, I don't think that's right either, but it's, it's very close. It's somewhere between the two thing, names we were saying. But you compare the two and like the new, it wasn't really scary at all because it's just too visually there. But you get the mm. starkness of that miniseries and literally Tim Curry putting in that amazing performance as Pennywise the Clown, but he's in yeah. an overlit, just real world state. It's it really sort of cut through. And I think it yeah, just sort I'm of speaks to that- the idea that horror, well, horror exists in the real world. And so I yeah. think for horror to really sort of just affect you at like the absolute core, it needs to get to something which is actually at your core as well. And so a sense of reality and the fact that you can connect to it, I think is integral. It's it's really unusual because that I, I saw the miniseries, I enjoyed the miniseries, it didn't have that kind of effect on me. But for a certain generation of people, the the discourse that happened around that miniseries when the remake came out I had so many people talk about it in the way you're talking about it, that it was a deeply defining and terrifying moment in their their childhood and when they watched it for the first time. And that, although it didn't have that impact on me, it, it certainly has had on a, a lot of other people. So interesting. Okay. Next one for me, my friend. We're going all the way back to 1942. French director Jacques Tourneur made the original Cat People and in one of the great and truly terrifying moments of any film, um, a character called Alice, played by Jane Randolph. She goes for a nighttime swim at the local uh, pool, in, uh, indoor swimming pool, but she suddenly finds herself being stalked um, by what we assume to be a giant cat of some kind. We know it to be uh, Simone Simon's uh, transformed body. Whenever Simone Simon becomes intimate, her... Uh, tendency to turn into a cat kicks in and she's hunting down this woman who may be a challenge to her love interest um this scene is cut together with shadows and pool reflections and noises and it is i can remember watching it on late night television on channel seven as part of their monster movie midnight kind of thing they used to run it's where i first saw the original thing from another planet as well um And it was just one of the most terrifying things I'd ever seen. And when she gets up and finally escapes and runs away, I felt the the weight lift off my chest. I can still recall it now when it was back in the the 80s that this happened. Funnily enough, in Paul Schrader's 80s remake, that part was played by Annette O'Toole, who you know also played famously... Oh, Mm -hmm. my God. Not sure. In one of the Superman films. Wasn't she wasn't she Lana Lane or Lottie Lane or one of those in one of the Superman films? Anyway, Lock that's Lane. A, I by. I don't know, something like and, that. Annette O'Toole played Annette O'Toole played Lana Lang in Superman four. Four or three? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was four. Anyway. But anyway. I... Uh, 
That's the connection. All right, your number three. No, your number two. My number two, uh, I'm going to talk about the movie Candyman with Virginia Madsen. Uh, I'm sure I talked about this when we did the remake a few years ago. Yeah. Sure. But anyway, uh, there was something, and again, this really taps into what I was talking about with it, which is um, scenes of just like stark reality and just like connection. Uh, who was it? It was Clive Barker that directed that. Uh, there's a sequence sort of relatively early into the film where the Virginia Madsen character, she's a university researcher, and her um, research takes her into the projects. And so there's some very rundown, very... Um, scary environments that she has to go through uh with mm. gang people around and you know just people living in squalor really creepy like it's amazingly well shot like it is just deeply really unnerving is. being there but part of me is just deeply concerned of is the horror because it's just like a scary place to be in or is the horror because it's a scary place to be in because there's black people there and maybe i'm a horrible racist i'm not too sure so i've been interrogating that now for about 30 years Really? Still working on it? Okay. Still working um, through. So, all right. So my final one, my third one, is a little Australian film directed by Joel Anderson uh, in 2008 called Lake Mungo. Now, when I first saw this, I saw this at a Sydney Film Festival screening, and I'm certain I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but the final moments of this film, it's the story of a drowned girl called Alice Palmer, and there's a lot of references to Twin Peaks in this, um, not least of which being the lady's name, Palmer. Um, the spirit of her may have returned to her family's suburban home. The film is all cut together like a, a 7.30 report or a Four Corners report where they interview the parents and show some footage of what may be a ghost. And then it's kind of revealed to be a hoax, but then in the very final moments of the film, they go back through all the photos that they've looked at and all the CCTV footage have been set up around the house. And in every one of these scenes, there's a little ghostly figure standing in the corner or hiding away. It still gives me chills the way I remember it. And I remember just being so sunken in my chair um, and being so purely terrified by the fact that this spirit had been there the whole time through the film that I uh, it completely blew my mind. It's one of my favourite, well, not just Australian films, but it is one of my favourite Australian films, but it's such a terrifically inventive, scary movie. And Joel Anderson, I'm not quite sure what he went on to do. I interviewed him once at a festival and he goes, I'm going to the US to try my luck there. And I really haven't seen hide nor hair of him since, but um, Lake Mungo is a, is a great bit of Halloween night viewing. Yeah. Uh, for me, my final thing is, and look, again, this is the real world intruding in. Uh, I think we've all seen that real ghost that exists in the movie Three Men and a Baby. Uh, gives me the Wiggins every time I see it. <laughs> yes. The spirit of Dan of, of um, well, Ted Danson um, hiding behind a curtain. No, no, Simon, you don't know what I'm talking about here? I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a, it's a... If you freeze, slow down the VHS of, of Three Men and a Baby, you see a boy behind a curtain and all these reports came out that it was a haunted apartment where they shot the film. And But it turned out to be a standee of a mini Ted Danson that was from one of his movies or something like that, wasn't it? No, it wasn't Ted Danson. It was a standee of a kid. Oh, okay. That's so weird. Yeah, so it's actually like a kid, about, but yeah. It's, it's, I do get a kick out of those sort of, Things like um, the the uh, dwarf who hung himself on the Wizard of Oz, or how you can see the guy's penis in Teen Wolf—they're always good for a laugh. 
Wait, you can see a guy's penis in Teen Wolf? Oh, boy, you've got a fun afternoon of Googling ahead of you. Yeah, there's a whole thing. Or well, Teen Wolf 2 in a basketball game, one of the extras up in the bleachers um, takes his peen out on screen and it's there on the final footage. Just Google it. Google Teen Wolf. I mean, it's... Look, obviously it's Teen Wolf and not Teen Wolf 2 because Teen Wolf takes place around basketball courts and Teen Wolf 2 is a boxing-orientated sports film. Oh, wow. Pardon moi. Yeah. I didn't know your classic film but, knowledge was so uh, profound. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, but the whole thing is, like, I never would have been able to notice the guy's pain in Teen Wolf because I was too distracted by a woman named Boof. Boof. <laughs> Oh, now we're getting into some really scary bits. Um, are we going to do what else have you been watching this week? Very quickly. Yeah, okay. Really quickly. What have you been watching, Simon? Well, I stumbled along to the new IMAX theatre to see uh, Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. Um, it is everything you've heard. A terrific piece of, um, well, it's advertising, of course. It's to keep continually boost the Taylor Swift brand. But I had such a fun time with all the other kids screaming. They were up and dancing. It was kind of like a full concert experience, except without all the horrible queuing to get back to your car afterwards. Um, the, the movie itself is a great piece of concert film um, uh, footage and, 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 and making it work because uh, she's a great performer. The songs are all a little bit samey-samey, but uh, great up on the big screen. And the IMAX screen delivers. It looks fantastic. Yeah. I wish when you asked me, are we still going to do the what else have you been watching? I just said no. <laughs> okay. What are we moving on to now? Uh, what else have I been doing? Oh, did you know that when I went and saw Kills of the Flower Moon, I mean, I say, did you know, because as, as if you'd know this, uh, there were signs up in the cinema everywhere for the Taylor, uh, the Tay-Tay show, uh, just saying yeah. like what you're allowed to do and what the cinema was okay with and about dancing in the aisles and singing and yeah. whatnot. Uh, cinema was very okay with it. Like, that's cool. Yep. Uh, but I asked, like, if the same rules applied to Killers of the Flower Moon, <laughs> and the guy said that, yeah, go for it. No way. No way. But over in over at the AMC theatres in the US and Taylor herself went online and said, look, it's okay to do this. I want you to treat it like a concert experience. So get your phone out, film your favourite bits, get up and dance in the aisle. And, you know, I'm an old man. I hate when phones are taken out in cinemas, but I was totally on board with all the kids doing this. What am I going to tell a whole cinema of little girls not to start filming Tay-Tay up on the big screen? So it really did add to the... To the element, the, the the sheer joy of the the movie going experience. How that would add to Killers of the Flower Moon, I don't know. Look, I mean, obviously, it's important to keep in mind that um, Taylor wants everyone like creating a social event out of it because that just sells of more course, tickets. Yeah. Like that's absolutely whole driving Dan thing. Barrett, let's jump forward to yeah. on this day in history. <laughs> Okay, what do we got? October 30, 2012. What did Disney buy on this day? Sorry, October 30, 2012. Uh, it's, it just seems like so long ago in a galaxy far, far away, Simon. <laughs> Are you saying Lucasfilm? I believe that that is what I'm saying. Well, you'd be right. October 31, 2010. Which blockbuster TV series took its first steps on this day? I'm not sure. Like, is first steps like a pun? Yes, it's a clue. Not a pun, a clue. It to is? Help out those in the audience, yes. Okay. Oh, I'm actually not too sure. 2010. 
Like I was thinking maybe it was something like sort of Breaking Bad, but that was probably more like about 2008, 2009. I think you got the yeah, same. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. What have we got? Work, right? It's The Walking Dead. Oh, the so I must be Walking steps. Dead then. Of course, Steps. Yeah, I see. Yeah. November 2, 2022. What became the most watched YouTube video of all time? Oh, sorry. It was like a year or two ago, you said. 2022. I don't know. I mean, ultimately, it should be a resurgence of uh, Taze on Day, but it's not going to be Chocolate Rain. Um, I don't know. What is it, sir? What? Baby Shark by Pink Fong. Oh, God. Video of all time. You're welcome. It's birthday time. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. All right. This is a bit of a low-hanging fruit for me. You should be able to guess this. I was tired after a long plane flight, so I just grabbed these names and it all came together well. October 28, 1965, Jamie Gertz you remember from one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld. October 29, She hasn't got a square to spare. She hasn't got a square to spare. October 29, 1971, Winona Ryder, Sawoon. October 30, 1953, our favorite dead accountant, Charles Martin Smith. And October 1st, 1991, Anthony Ramos. What could those four people, they've all starred in a, in a movie opposite a certain thing, I haven't really thought this through very well, but what could it be? Have they all arrest, been arrested for shoplifting in Beverly Hills? Maybe, but I can't be certain. Okay. Have they all purchased a football team with their partners? Who did that? Has someone done that? Yeah, we'll talk about that at the end. Okay. Well, I'll work okay. backwards, see if you can Okay, wait a sec. At some point, was Winona Ryder in the movie American Graffiti? I don't think so. I don't think she... Okay, then I'm out of ideas. Okay, November 1, 1991, Anthony Ramos. He found himself paired with robot aliens in 2023 Transformers Rise of the Beast. October 30, 1953, Charles Martin Smith. Smith, he was the kind-hearted scientist on the trail of Jeff Bridges' stranded alien in Starman. Winona Ryder, of course, played opposite a hideous hybrid xenomorph in Alien Resurrection. Now, this is a tricky one. October 28, 1965, Jamie Gertz. She starred in showrunner Dan Fogelman's comedy series, The Neighbours, in which a New Jersey family oh, yeah. moves to an affluent gated community composed entirely of extraterrestrials. They have all starred opposite aliens. I'd, I'd never heard of I've The seen... until I researched this. I've seen the first episode of it, and I was never ever going to watch a second episode. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, so, can, so I, not... can I give you can I give you fun Jamie Gertz facts? All right, sure. Let's roll, baby. Okay. Let's save okay, well, it's really just one. It's, it's really one fact. She is okay. the wealthiest working actor in Hollywood. <gasps> really? All those Seinfeld yeah. dollars. <laughs> I mean, you'd think that. Uh, but no, it was actually just because she ended up marrying like a billionaire in the late 80s or early 90s. And that guy's just yeah. been getting wealthier and wealthier. And so they own, I forget which sporting team it is. It's like a football team and a few other things. But, you know, she's just living her best life. Wow. Is she doing much work anymore? I haven't seen her in a lot of things. 
Well, no, because she's incredibly rich and doesn't really need to. And I guess once you're in the neighbors, you're like, well, why am I still doing this? Mm. Yeah. I'm going to try and hunt down the neighbors. It sounds like a lot of fun. Fogelman can go either no, way. No, it's not. He's done some good stuff. It's not? Okay. All right. No, um, <laughs> it's we... shockingly awful. <laughs> Let's do your sign-off where you do that thing where you talk about stuff you do. Okay. Uh, stuff I do. Um we haven't had like the actual sort of scripts in the rundown for a while. So I've always had to do this off the top of my head. Uh, folks, um, I do a always newsletter. It's called always be watching. It comes out five days a week, Monday through Friday. It's got the stories in TV, streaming and film, um, other stuff. If it's on a screen, I cover it in the newsletter. Sometimes it's really tangential just because I want to talk about the Beatles. And then yes, on I Friday, I do the always be yeah. streaming newsletter. Because cool. there was a documentary about the Beatles, so it was, it was the technology from the TV documentary series as well. That's why I was... Anyway. Also, because I'm seeing Paul McCartney next week, which won't be on screens, I guess, but unless... There'll probably be screens in the venue. I'm not sure. Anyway, I also do a thing. I didn't know you were a concert stream. goer. I can go to concerts. That's very cool of you. And for old kids out there, very Paul cool McCartney guy. was a Beatle. Yeah. Uh, my name's Simon Foster. Screen watching. You can follow us on Facebook at Screen Watching Podcast, on X at Screen underscore Watching, over on the YouTube channel, which is at Screen Watching. You can see my interview with Anu Pam Sharma. He's made a terrific new documentary called Brand Bollywood Down Under, which looks at Bollywood Down Under. Um, or you can email us at Screen Watching Podcast at gmail.com and you can read some stuff that I've written at screen space.net. So X's engagement apparently has dropped 18% this year. And that surprised wow. me because I thought it'd be quite a bit more because my feeds are looking very quiet lately. Yeah. Yes. I'm yeah. getting absolutely no interest on X from anything I put up there. Uh, Facebook's picked up a bit lately. YouTube, we get a lot of things. Hey, we put yeah. the trailer up on YouTube for that court miniseries on Stan, you know, the one with Sean Penn in it. Um, our YouTube sort of traffic we sometimes hit about a thousand people look at our stuff a couple of my interviews have done like two or three thousand followers the court trailer got twelve thousand views out of nowhere it was so bizarre it might have been linked somewhere only because uh courts end up being pulled from uh sales in mipcom because obviously with the concerns in israel right now so if there was a new story about Courts, maybe it was embedded somewhere, and yeah, interesting. That might have done maybe that. we're just hugely popular. <laughs> no, there's another reason. There's another reason. <laughs> Got to be another reason. See you later, yeah. Dan. Good to talk to you. Good luck with the editing. <laughs> Likewise, Simon. Folks, this has yeah. been screen watching. My name's Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster, who, as we learned this week, does not know who Tay Zonde is. Outrageous, folks. We'll be back next week. Chocolate rain Some stay dry and others feel the pain Chocolate rain A baby born will die before the sin Chocolate rain